Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same home, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town, and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. You yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me. And whoever rejects me, the one rejects the one who sent me. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Jesus, in this passage, remember, he is on his way to Jerusalem. Scripture tells us in the chapter 9 in Luke that he begins his journey towards Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about it last week. He has set his face there. That's where he's going. He's going to Jerusalem to to die, to fulfill his mission that his father had sent him to do. And while he is on his way, in Luke chapter 10, he decides to send and appoint 70 and send them ahead of him. Gives them instruction and gives them power and says, go now and advance my kingdom, prepare my way. This is the same group of people who, in the passage in Luke chapter 9 that we talked about last week, was ready to firebomb a Samaritan village because they didn't accept Jesus. Surely, just after one chapter or one town, this group of followers didn't understand what it meant to follow Jesus, much less to advance his kingdom and to make his name known and to prepare the way. They didn't get it all of the sudden. We know that for sure in the subsequent chapters of Luke that they didn't understand. But Jesus, in his 
wisdom sends them anyway. It reminds me of my seminary days. I um, spent over three years at seminary and training to be a pastor. I took theology courses, process theology, systematic theology, historical theology, countless classes on Christian history and scriptures. I took classes on leadership, the life and work of a pastor, church administration. We spent two days, I remember, we went down to the university pool and we spent two days learning how to baptize. And we would get in the pool with our white robes on and we would baptize one another over and over again. The university students sat there and I remember them pointing at us and laughing at us. Um, And I remembered learning how to officiate a wedding. And I thought to myself, this isn't rocket science. You put the ring with the rock on the woman, you put the other ring on the man, you pronounce them husband and wife. This isn't rocket science, but we spent time on that. And, and when I graduated, I thought I was set. I knew I was set. Billy Graham, watch out, here I come. And then <clears throat> I got my first pastorate in a small church in the central part of Texas, and I got up to preach for the first time, and I looked at the congregation and the people who had come to hear a word from God, and I got tongue-tied. We took counseling courses, and I thought I was ready to say what I needed to say, to ask the questions I needed to ask when people came to me, and I remember them coming to me with their pain and and never seeing... um, pain in somebody's eyes like this and I remember forgetting what I was supposed to say and fumbling all the way through the session my first baptism I stepped into the waters and and was um, immediately hit by how sacred and holy the waters were and I fumbled the baptism I I dunked the person too deep and their legs came up and it splashed and it splashed the choir my first wedding, I, I put the wrong ring on the man and had to switch him back in the wedding. And If it wasn't for this small, small, small Texas church whose ministry they knew was to teach young, cocky pastors <laughs> how to be humble followers of Christ, then I wouldn't have made it. That's, that's Jesus, right, for you. They were being Jesus to me, and that's Jesus. He, he knew these 70 weren't ready, but he also knew that the only way they would get ready was to do, right? They had studied with him. They had listened to him. They had heard him teach, and they had heard him preach. They'd seen him practice miracles, and that was enough. They couldn't learn anymore after that. The only thing that they needed, the only way they were going how to love, learn how to love and to advance the kingdom of God and prepare the way of Christ was to do it. That's always Jesus' prescription for a fumbling, stumbling Christian. Go and do. There is a time for thinking yes, but Christianity is a verb. According to Jesus, it's a verb. Follow, he says. Go, he commands. Do, he insists. And after you do it over and over and over again, and after you fail and fail and fail, you might begin to understand what it's like to follow me. 
And so Jesus sends these 70 out. Go ahead of me. Start doing. It's your turn, he says. But he doesn't leave them completely by themselves. He sends them out in pairs to share the news of the kingdom and to participate in kingdom hospitality. Not one by one, but in pairs. So there is always someone there to be encouraging if the other one is discouraged. To keep faith if one, if one is dispirited. And to carry on when one feels tempted to quit. Because Jesus understood this discipleship thing, this gig can be hard. And it's always easier with a companion Jesus is reminding them, and in reminding them, he's telling us, you can't do this alone. The journey, the job, the requirement, the road will be too hard. I don't know if you heard it. I hear it all the time. It seems to be the hip Christian thing to do these days to reject community, to claim the world as your sanctuary, perhaps. I hear phrases like, all I need is the sky and some stars as my cathedral to worship the Lord. Or God is all I need. Or the church is full of hypocrites. I've been hurt by them, so I choose to worship God at my home or in my car or at my table with my family. And in this one chapter, Jesus says all of that is nonsense. That certainly doesn't mesh with the biblical understanding of Christian discipleship. On the contrary, Jesus seems to demand community. In fact, part of the foundation of Christianity is the notion that we can't do it alone. That you need the person sitting next to you, that you need me, I need you. That we need each other. That in a, in a, on a deeper level that God is found in the other. Just as much as he's found inside of us. And like it or not, believe it or not, you can't experience the fullness of God unless you join a community. It just won't happen. We need other followers to to speak shibboleth to us and in our lives, to call out deception, to bring forth love, to speak truth when we can't find our way. Notice also that Jesus only sends 70 followers ahead of him. Some of your Bibles might have 72. I've heard a lot of folks despair over the decline of the church these days, even I stood up here and given you statistics about the declining church. We're not big enough to make a difference, I hear all the time. In 30 years, Christianity won't be the majority religion, or we're not rich enough, or we don't have resources, or this or that, and you get the idea. But in this passage, it's striking to me that Jesus sends out just 70. Not 700 or 7,000 or 70,000, but 70. And look at what they accomplish. They come back and they report all of these amazing things they've done. 
Not only in this story, but in the stories to come of evil submitting to them. And also of what happens months and years ahead. It's this group of disciples who after Pentecost will preach and will teach the good news of the gospel. And they'll take that good news to the ends of the earth. In later years, descendants will build hospitals and orphanages and and refugee sitters. And all manner of institutions that profoundly touch the lives of the people of this world. Just 70 people in the beginning. And with faith and courage, they changed the world. Prompted me to look up the average size of a Baptist congregation. Not a Southern Baptist or CBF Baptist or an American Baptist congregation. Just taking them all. What's the average size of the Baptist congregation in America today? The average number of attendees that attend a worship service on Sunday, 80. We have more than we need. Our cup is overflowing with more than enough. I imagine these disciples on the road together learning to share both the journey and the good news. I imagine them feeling blessed and amazed by the ways that God equips them in these chosen pairs. It's what I imagine because that's what I've experienced. Go your way. That's what Jesus says in Luke 10. Go your way. I have selected you. Now go your way. And that is not a commandment from on top of a mountain on high. But, but it is a call from Jesus to walk the road that has been set before us. We are not supposed to chart the road from beginning to end. Instead, his call is to walk by faith one step at a time. There's some practical theology there. Step by step to go your way as sent forth, as called forth. And I have to admit and confess that that's the hardest thing for me. I want to be able to go through scenarios and to pour over models showing me the end game. I always want to know what the end game is. If you don't tell me the end game, then it's hard for me to make a decision. I, I need to know how I'm going to get to where I'm going. And Jesus seemingly says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the end. Don't worry about how, what turn to take. Just take the next step. It's the equivalent of the psalmist when he says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, not a spotlight, not a beam that shows the entire path, but just a lamp, enough to make the next step, enough to show that there's, there's room, the path is here for one more step, and then one more step after that. It is faith that reminds us that we'll be okay at journey's end. And we'll get there eventually. It's interesting though what Jesus told the 70. Striking, in fact. Seems harsh to some of us though. What I find particularly amazing about this passage is not the miracles that are recorded, but the commandment Jesus gives them to be dependent on others. 
Take nothing, he says. Don't take sandals or purse or money. Don't take a thing. No purse or bag. And importantly, no guarantees about how you'll be received. No guarantees at all. All you have, Jesus instructs them, is the promise that I'll be there for you. That you will do great things through me. And that you'll come home again. I remember fighting, I guess that's the best word to use, fighting with two deacons in my previous church I served in. We set a vision and the church had decided to go this way and it was my job, I thought, to um, help the church do that, to take the church where they said they wanted to go, not to lead them where I thought they should go, but to lead them where they said God was calling them to go. So I tried to start doing that and some deacons didn't like that, didn't like the direction the church was going. So they began to attack me, which was okay. Preacher doesn't teach the Bible, um, even though I dedicated myself to doing that. Well, he doesn't open the Bible and have it open while he's preaching. That means he's not teaching the Bible. So the next week I'd have the Bible open. And they might, I might get a slap on the back, but they, that's not what they were worried about. They didn't like the direction of the church. Maybe I said things about Jesus they didn't like or believe, and it angered them. And I distinctly remember sleepless nights, wondering and praying to God, asking him if I've done something wrong. Is this where we should be going? And then it hit me. I realized that in community, people can disagree. And that these people, these um, members of my family, were just responding because they were scared. But the two, true testament of a Christ-centered church is that those same people support one another through life. And after that, I was able to look at them in the eye and say, I want you here at this church. And I was able to mean it. Because the party wouldn't be the same without you. Because this church would be different without you. Like Jesus says, I realize that it's, um, it is so easy to love lambs. Right? It's so easy if I'm a lamb to love another lamb. There's nothing threatening about that because I'm not worried about the other lamb. It's so much harder to love a wolf, especially when you feel like you're surrounded by wolves. And if we can do that as a church, then we might have come close to grasping what it means to follow the sacrificial lamb. But the biggest decision I'm sure these disciples had to make was when do we leave a town? And when, do we, when do we go to a house? And then when do we decide that, listen, these people aren't receiving what we're saying and so we're going to leave? When, when do we leave? When do we go? When do we stay? That's the hardest decision as a disciple of Christ is knowing when to stay and knowing when to leave. 
It's been the hardest thing I've had to deal with. Surely in your job or career, in your family life, that's a challenge for us. And Jesus speaks to the decision as he issues his instructions to the 70. Stay if you're welcome. If you are not, dust the dirt off your sandals and leave. But I really believe there are times, right? There are times, after all, for leaning in to where you are. Times when God calls us to engage and to struggle in believing that that struggle will shape us and form us in a way that ease and comfort never can. There are muscles in our body, in our soul, that can be developed only by pressing through, not with pride, not with the utter conviction that we are right, but with the humility that enables us to summon our intention and will and open ourselves to the grace that carries us through situations that we can't navigate on our own. There is ground that becomes holy. I really believe holy, holy, and sacred only when we remain long enough to see the blessing that can emerge from struggles that shimmers through only after the dust kicks up the struggle and finally begins to settle. And then there are times for leaving. Times when, as Jesus counsels his disciples, the holy thing to do is to leave. And only you know when that time comes. Only you can discern when that spirit is saying to go forward. In all of it, Jesus, though, at the end, promises that whatever you do, My rod and my staff will comfort you. And the only question for us is, do we have the resolve and the commitment to follow? Jesus says in his instructions to the 70, eat what is put before you. Um, My mom used to say that. And I'd scoff at it, but I've grown up a little bit. And I realize that what is put before us this morning, especially, is a gift. I always go back to, and I can't remember if I've told you before or not, but I always go back to the the old Presbyterian retired minister who is taking communion in a Presbyterian church in Scotland and he writes about how he sees this um, woman in front of him receiving the elements receiving this gift that Christ invites us to take his grace And, and, and she can't take it she looks at it she wants to do it but she's crying she can't take it and so he taps her on the shoulder and he looks at her as if to say what's wrong it's there for the taking. Grace revealed right here for you. And she intuitively knows what he's saying and says, if he only knew, or if you only knew what I've done, you tell me not to take this. And the wise retired minister replies, take it because it's for all our sins. Take it. It's a gift. For all our sins. Let's pray.
God, the moment um, Christianity in our hearts and in our lives turns into something other than a verb, please stop us. The moment we stop doing and start sitting, somehow put a big red flag in our hearts. God, we've gathered here this morning and we have carried a multitude of sins in our hearts. And this morning we pull up to the table and we say thank you for your gift. And we take it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.